this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is sponsored by The Killing Forest, the new novel by the number one international best-selling author, Sarah Bladel. Here's a fact you guys are going to like. In Denmark, it's estimated that 20% of the population has read one of Sarah Bladel's books. That's how popular she is in her home country. thought you guys might like that. This is the follow-up to her smash hit, The Missing Girls. features the same main character named Louise Rick. So here's the synopsis of the book. Following extended leave, Louise Rick returns to work at the Special Search Agency, an elite unit of the National Police Department. She's assigned a case involving a 15-year-old who was banished a week earlier. Her investigation takes her on a journey back through time. She reconnects with figures from their past, her former in-laws, fanatic ancient religion believers, and her longtime close friend, journalist Camilla Lind. As she moves through the small town's cramped network of deadly connection, Louise unearths toxic truths left unspoken and dangerous secrets. The name of the book, The Killing Forest, the author is Sarah Bladel. Thank you so much for sponsoring this episode of the Book Riot Podcast. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 155. We're recording on Thursday, April 28th. We're having April showers here. I am Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Well, here we are. Yes. Here we're back again, back in the saddle again. Uh, I am in full BEA prep mode. We got good feedback. I don't know. I, don't, I think I shared that. People emailed saying they like the BEA prep talk. Yeah, nice. And I had a couple tweets about, oh, wait, what was that title? Yes. Um, so yeah, I'm in BEA prep mode to looking at meetings and thinking about who I want to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to spend a week in Chicago. I love that. Um, I had good. some more birdie talk this week with people. In oh, publishing. yeah. And uh, I think we should expect to be it to be a ghost town mm. from the publishing side. Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, we we talked about how HMH is not going to be there at all. Yeah, right. Um, the couple of people I talked to and in, in that work in how big houses this week, mm-hmm. uh, their skeleton crews. Going. Yeah, it feels like I've been getting just as many no, I'm not going to be there mm-hmm. as I have been getting yeses from folks. And usually, like at this point in the approach to BEA, the setting up of lunches and meetings and stuff is kind of frantic. Yeah, um, it, it does feel like there's going to be less of it. Um, oh, I don't know if we've mentioned that we're on Snapchat now. Oh. That, we, yeah, we, got, we got a Snapchat from BEA. And we got to do some. Yeah, of that. I'm planning to be the Book Riot Snapchatter. Yeah. Um, so you can follow Book Riot. It's just, you know, username Book Riot, or I've put our snap code up on Instagram a couple of times if you follow I was thinking we, we should dork around with like some live video on Facebook or Periscope or something too while we're there. Just like six minutes sure. on the show floor. People would like that. People would yeah, yeah. go, they want to see. Yeah, we um, might as well. Yeah, we could walk through the Random House booth for three minutes live or, you know, some mm-hmm. of the other. Point at some of the giant banners and book yeah. covers. And um, so if there's anything you'd like, signings. especially to see, if you've never been, if you're curious, shoot us an email or tweet and say, yes, we'd like that. And we'll make a special effort to, to, to show you something. And maybe we'll take some pictures of, ga- we'll do some, we'll do some multimedia galley bragging. 
Yeah, yeah. there's always fun, you know, stacks of stuff and big signings mm-hmm. and surprises of things. The Dianetics pirates. Yeah, the di- who knows? Maybe it won't even be pirates this time. I don't, it could be anything. Literally, I'm could hoping be for astronauts. That would oh, be, that'd be nice. It, it would yeah. seem appropriate for like. Does Scientologists believe in space? I don't even know. I, it's, oh it's, yeah, uh, Scientology. Oh, because like, like Zorp or whatever comes from space. Yeah, <laughs> Zorp or whatever. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's do our first sponsor. We got a new sponsor this week. It's Book we of the Month Club, and it is the, it is the Book of the Month Club. So here's what it is. I, you know, this is one of those things. It, the name's been around forever, but people don't even know. Like, is that a thing still? Do people still do it? And yes, it is a thing. And here's here's how it works. It's a monthly subscription, um, and it's a surprise, but kind of it's sort of in between knowing what you're going to get and not knowing because you get sort of five choices. You could pick from five books. Um, and they pick them, and they have great, you know. Be, I guess judges is the wrong word. Selectors, curators. I don't even know. What they, to do yeah, it. they call them judges. Um, I think because they each of the judges does read a bunch of yes. um, submissions, and then each judge picks one book that they recommend that month. So they're they're like recommenders. Right. So some of the judges include. So they've been doing this for ninety years, and their 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 mission is to discover and bring literary gems to avid readers, the type of books that are really worth reading. So here's some of the recent judges they've had: um, Dave Sedaris. Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Mayim Bialik, uh, journalists from Oprah's Magazine, Essence, Harper's, <coughs> Liberty Hardy from a little <laughs> site we like to call Book Riot. And their special guest judge this month is comedian and actress Ellie Kemper from The Office and The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which Michelle and I just finished binge-watching season two the other night. Um, so they, they, they pick powerful, immersive, new hardcover books each month. And here's the other thing. You get great judges. It comes every month. So you get that sort of fun surprise. But they're also really cheap. I mean, they're, they're, they're cheaper than Amazon. $9.99 a month. And shipping is always free. It's a heck of a deal. April selections include The Nest um, by Cynthia Sweeney. I don't know how to say her middle name, so I'm not Dupree. going. Dupree. Dupree. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which debuted number two last week on and, the uh, Publishers Weekly hardcover it, fiction list. A and huge it is hit. a damn good book for spring and summer. Yeah, and uh, our friend uh, Greg Zimmerman saw he he said probably his favorite book of the year, and it really has something special to beat it. Um, the Flight of Dreams by Ariel Lawn, um, fact and fiction fusing this multi-layered story set in, around Hindenburg's ill-fated flight. No one knows by J.T. Ellison, A Mother's Reckoning by Sue Klebold, and Left of Boom by John Smith and Ralph Peluso. So some names you don't and some names you don't know, picked by people who really care about books at a great price. And here's the best deal of all. Of all. If you want to try it, use offer code BOOKRIOT50, no spaces, BOOKRIOT50, and it's the number 50, BOOKRIOT50, and you'll get 50% off a three-month membership. So really, you're looking at you're paying five bucks a month for a, a brand new hardcover picked by someone who really cares about books. So it's a great deal. Give it a to give it a shot. Book of the Month Club, um, bookofthemonthclub.com. Just bookofthemonth.com. What did I say? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I, I misspoke. Bookofthemonth.com. Offer code BookRiot50, and uh, it, it couldn't be less expensive to try. So thanks so much for sponsoring the show. And uh, here we go. Let's go into the week. Okay. So, so this is. It, we did talk about this we before. Did. We decided that we talked about this before. We I did. couldn't we remember. Talked, okay. It wasn't a book club before, but we talked like, I think about a year ago or sometime last year, there was probably last football season, there was a news story about how Andrew Luck is like constantly, and he's the quarterback of the Colts, how he's constantly 
talking about books with his teammates. And at that point, it was just a story that we were like, this is so cool. We love that it. That is when so cool. Famous people are into books. So they've made good on this. I like to think that our begging him to have a book club had something to do with it. And they're going beyond the locker room and have started Andrew Luck's Book Club. And mm-hmm. so you can go to andrewluckbookclub.com and there are going to be different selections. I think the coolest feature is that every time, every month, um, there is a rookie book, which is a kid's title, and then there's a veteran book, which is an adult title. Um, and they're all books that he has read and loved. The kickoff... Uh, look what I did! Kickoff! There you go! Sports <laughs> metaphor! Accidental segues! Um, the rookie book this time around is Maniac McGee by Jerry Spinelli, uh, which is a fond reading memory from my own childhood. Yeah, totally. Uh, and The Boys in the Boat is the veteran pick. It's by Daniel James Brown. And Which that's is the st- a huge bestseller, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Um, and there are cool videos on the site of Andrew Luck talking about why he picked each one. And it's super easy to participate. You pick up the book, you read it, and then you post about it anywhere on social media. The hashtag is AL Book Club, or you can also tag AL Book Club on Twitter um, and, you know, use that hashtag wherever. And it's the site loops it in. So when you go to andrewluckbookclub.com, you can see people are already participating and tweeting and Instagramming. And uh, Andrew Luck is making little videos and sitting in front of his bookshelf talking about (laughs) why he, I just like, this is, I can't. It's so good. (laughs) He's a a great quarterback and seems like a really smart and sweet guy. Um, Mm -hmm. I follow the NFL a little bit and, uh, also, he, he majored in architecture at Stanford. And, oh, I didn't uh, know that. I, I, I live with an architect, and I, I, I dated her while she was an architecture major as an undergraduate. And that is not an easy profession. I cannot imagine being an architecture major and being a Division One pro number one pick level prospect at Stanford and starting and playing football. I, I just don't know how. I mean, even with even with all the support we know that elite athletes get, like I'm not discounting any of that stuff. I'm saying even with that, uh, an unbelievable achievement. I think valedictorian of his high school class, and uh, super smart guy. I think no slouch, Andrew. Luck. I, I, he immediately shoots into the ranks of the the big, most famous book nerds in the world. I, I linked to this yeah. story today in Critical Linking, and I was like, who? It's like Emma Watson, Mindy Kaling. And I'm, you know, like Andrew Luck, and I'm not. I mean, Grant Hill when he was playing was a huge book nerd, but I, you know, he's sort of fallen. Out, he's, you know, yeah. he's no longer playing, so it's kind of falls out of the limelight. You know, Oprah, of course, of course, Oprah. Um, Barack Obama, you know, is a huge book nerd himself, uh, but you know, he's got other things to do. Maybe in the the post White House years, he'll he'll when, get on the Andrew Luck book club or have the. Obamasbooks.org oh, or whatever. please. And on the other side of the aisle, there was that story from a few years ago about how um, Carl Rove, yes. I think Carl Rove and, the, and President uh, Bush. Bush had a running competition about who would read more in a given year. Yeah, right. And, and, yeah. So I don't know. So the, the, the Mount Rushmore of um, celebrity book nerds. Oh, Reese Witherspoon would go on there, I think, oh, at yeah. this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we, we have a new celebrity crush over here at, yeah, at the Book Riot that, Podcast. This is, it's like the, the like white hot center of what you want a celebrity book club mm-hmm. to be. Like he's an icon from one 
part of the world from sports that is typically like not just not associated, but sometimes sports are actively dissociated yes. from, you know, reading and intellectual pursuits. And there's uh, that false dichotomy of you can be like an athlete kid or you can be a brain. Um, and I, I'm really happy to see someone with the profile of Andrew Luck, you know, breaking that down. It's such a cool role model thing to have for kids and also for adults who maybe need that reminder that you can be into both um, or they're being a book nerd, we like to think is just as cool um, as being good at sports. What a cool guy. I, you know, I'm, you and I have been kicking around this idea of having people on the show for yes. like little interlude episodes, maybe after we talk about a new story. And I have to say, my heart is really hoping that we can get you got your heart luck. set on it that you got, can't get attached. But you know, I'm a little I am a little. Attached. I know I, I can tell. Yeah, I could tell. And the other I'm thing, hoping, oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm going to send Andrew Luck a note that's like, we like you. Will you talk to us? Check yes mm, or no. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little mash <laughs> How do you note. think that's going to work for Well, me? the other thing about this too that's just worth mentioning, I think, is that it doesn't look like there's any – he's not trying to make money off of it. There's not – I mean, there's not even like Amazon affiliate links to this. Yeah. I mean, it's not even like the simple, no, very there, passive stuff. There aren't. It says like you can – There's there are links that say you can get the book at a library yeah. or at a bookstore. And when you click on the bookstore link, it just pulls up Google and you put in your zip code. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, uh, it's great. Uh, and not that I would, to I mean, I would be the the world's biggest hypocrite to um, to criticize someone for making money off a book related website. But you might expect something like that, or you know, it's within some larger umbrella or branding, or mm. you know, I'm sure he has Reebok or Under Armour or a Nike deal. It has nothing about that on there, as well, far as I can tell. I am a thousand percent sure that Andrew Luck or his publicist or his agent or whoever has a million emails in his inbox oh, yeah. right now from publicists and publishers who want to know how they can get him to recommend their book. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I would guess he's about to discover the joys of book mail. Yes, I, well. I, I would think uh, if you can get his address. Um, we should do a post of, of recommendations for the Andrew Luck Oh, book yeah, club. that's a great idea. And they're probably going to, I would, you know, probably just like the Colts office is going to start getting book mail. Oh, yeah. They're just going to send it to anything in Indy. You know, the, mm -hmm. the uh, Pawnee just... Parks and Rec Department will get it looking for Andrew Luck. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, check that out. AndrewLuckBookClub.com. A little this unwieldy is... of a URL, but, you know, you're not, the SEO, I'm sure, is yeah. great. I'm, I think this is great. It's exactly like the right amount of involvement. It's pretty frictionless. Yeah. Um, th this looks like it's going to run more smoothly than like Mark Zuckerberg's attempt at having people talk on Facebook. <laughs> well, I mean, that's something to say about it. Like what actually does it mean to be part of the book club? And it's very lightweight. It looks like it's going to mm -hmm. be a insert temporal unit of time, insert temporal unit here, interval yeah. recommendations. And then you post on social media. There's no forums here. Yeah, presumably um, you could, you know, click the hashtags and see what other people are saying about the same book and start conversations. Yeah. Um, oh, Jerry Spinelli. I'm scrolling through the page where they're showing all the tweets that have been sent. And Jerry mm. Spinelli, who wrote Maniac McGee, is like talking about it on Twitter. Sure, of course. I um, love this. So there you go. So that that's that's a cool thing in the book world. Um, I, 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 you know, I guess the next story... I don't, you know, I haven't followed Barnes and Noble for a million years. I followed it relatively closely from a financial, you know, I, I look at the quarterly earnings, I have to say, of Barnes and Noble because <laughs> I'm interested in the book industry now. Um, and I've read a little bit about, uh, what was the, what was that book? Merchants of Culture about the mm -hmm. publishing industry. Both, both of you and I have read it. And I think yeah, that's a, that's we would both recommend it, I think, for people interested. If you're listening to this show, frankly, uh, there's a good chance you're going to be interested in Merchants of Culture. It's basically the 20th century 
of the book publishing industry in North America, the story of like what's happened and what were the you know major things and changes. It um, is fascinating. And Barnes and Noble is probably the second most important single institution to happen to books after now Amazon. Um, and Len Riggio uh, is stepping down. Uh, he's been uh, the executive chairman for 45 years. And he's one of the founders. One of the founders. Um, I th- my memory is that there were two bookstores, basically. One may have been Barnes's books, and I think the other one was like Noble's books. And Riggio bought one of them and then merged with somebody else. That's my memory of the story. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm getting these mostly right, but a little bit wrong. Um, but that's it. He's done. And yeah. I'm not sure there's anything else to say about it. I'm not sure yeah, there's anything to much. read into it. Um, but it's worth noting, I the, think, at this point that uh, a, a titan of the book world in North America is stepping down, no longer going to be at the helm. Yeah, I think you're right that it's not a it's not really a huge story, except that he has been a huge person in the mm-hmm. world of books and reading. Doing this job for 45 years is no small Mm-mm. feat. And Barnes & Noble's not in a particularly fraught period right now so it's not like he you know flounced out the door because something isn't going his way or yeah a few years he, ago or, it seemed like it might right. be a little dicier right and uh, and it doesn't seem that he was pushed out either it seems like this is just kind of the time for change this is maybe the best retirement announcement that i've read in terms <laughs> of phrasing because his sentence here is i'm no longer going to be in charge i'm done with that i'm done with being top banana <laughs> that is pretty funny <laughs> which that is that's just the best way to piece out of your big fancy job. I am yeah. done being top banana. Um, he bought Barnes and Noble in 1971 and consists of one struggling store in Manhattan. That's the lead from the New York mm-hmm. Times story about this. Um, that actually store was been open for a long time over on Fifth Avenue and 18th Street, um, and it, that particular branch is now closed, sort of symbolically, I guess, for this. But turned it into the one store to the behemoth it became, really the apex of its power. You know, when you and I, we've talked about this before, when you and I were, you're a few years younger than I am, but in mm-hmm. our teenage years, um, the, the Barnes & Noble and uh, the Plaza in Kansas City, a lot, of think, a lot of people, I think, like us, who lived in suburbs or smaller towns that didn't necessarily have an independent bookstore, didn't have one close to it, it became a behemoth of the book world. And was, for a time, it kind of got a lot of, the, a lot of the same grief Amazon gets now. Um, for being too powerful, for closing other stores, for holding too much sway, for really squeezing publishers, for co-op and, you know, markdowns and things of that nature. Um, But it it, was like Fox Books and You've Got Mail. It was. It really was. Because that that movie came out in the fall of 98, You've Got Mail. Um, How do you know that? I, it's a, you know, it's a weird talent. Basically, if any movie come out between 85 and 2005, I can tell you the year and time of year it came out. If, you know, Uh. it's just, it's weird. Um, That came out in the fall of 98. And really, they don't even mention Amazon in that movie. Like it's not even a thing. Amazon launches, I think, in 95, you know, we could get certain things. And so it was the last, uh, you know, sort of the Baroque period of, of, of Barnes and Noble and in the public consciousness. And it's sort of quaint now to look at it and see. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Barnes and Noble is what it is at this point. Um, I think they're kind of retrenching to exist as what they are and do what they do best, which is they are physical bookstores in large suburban strip malls and malls, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's what they do best. Like the Nook business is a bit of a disaster. They're probably going to get rid of it. Their, their college bookstores have been successful and probably on a dollar for dollar basis, the most profitable part of the company. Um, you know, I don't know. I, if I were him, I, I could imagine the fatigue. It's been a hard 
last 15 years for Barnes and Noble to, to just to try to, you know, it's one thing to build something. Um, and it's another thing to maintain something, but it's another thing to need to be a wartime consigliere. Um, well, actually a wartime godfather, uh, when, you know, a billion, multi-billion dollar company that is a tech giant, um, is he, you know, trying to eat your lunch and who knows what the next five or 10 years will bring as Amazon gets back to yeah, it. But this- the being stuck in between, you know, like indie bookstores have been struggling against big bookstores mm-hmm. for quite a while now from Barnes and Noble and Borders and then against Amazon and like just the tidal wave of online shopping. Um, but Barnes and Noble has been kind of and then there's Amazon at the very top and Barnes and Noble for like the last decade has just been stuck in the middle yeah. of that fight. They're taking it from Amazon and then indie bookstores are struggling against them. And we've said for a long time that Barnes and Noble continuing to exist is actually a really good thing uh, for the health of indie bookstores as well, that it, you know, keeps the field interesting and more open than just a world where we have indies and we have Amazon and that's it. Um, It's, I can't imagine how tired Lynn Riggio must be. I hope that he, you know, gets to go lie on a beach somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the other thing is um, they, they still have, 640 retail stores. Um, God, that's so it's, many it's, books. It's, it's a lot of books. Um, you know, Trouble with the Nookie Reader. I'm just sort of trying to go over the the highlights. Um, yeah, I mean, there. I think the worm has turned a little bit in that Barnes & Noble is now, you know, I doubt independent bookstores love Barnes & Noble themselves, but the, the larger book public, the tenor of thinking about Barnes & Noble is not like it was against, you know, sort of Fox books in 98. I think right. there's a lot of... Um, good feeling, especially for, again, those of us who grew up going to Barnes & Nobles, it was our bookstore. Um, and also as a, you know, more on the side of the traditional publishing industry than Amazon is. So uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of situation. I'm not really sure. But they have been squeezed in terms of public perception. They no longer have the leverage, the big boy, where, you know, just wielding the big stick gets you what you want. But they don't have that. But nor do they have sort of the emotional, psychological connection that independent bookstores and libraries and used bookstores and things like that have had. They're kind of stuck in the middle. Um, so anyway, that it's, it's the passing of a, a giant in the book world. And I think it's hard to, un, it's hard to, it's hard to overestimate the tidal wave of change that Barnes and Noble brought about between 1975 or so, a few years after Riggio bought it and about 1997, 98, you know, sort of, you, I think you could mark, you know, you've got mail, frankly, as sort of the crescendo um, the end of the crescendo for Barnes and Noble's power and the beginning of the decrescendo to whatever it is now. Um, so congratulations to, to Riggio and everyone at Barnes and Noble for, for, for building a huge company that I think most people really like. Most mm-hmm. people really like Barnes and Noble. I guess, you know, I don't know if the, I didn't really mean to turn this into a Barnes and Noble elegy or retrospective, but I mean, do you think that that's true that people, most people in the book world now have sort of a, a, a fondness for Barnes and Noble, think... if, if not allegiance or loyalty, but a, I don't know. Yes. I, I don't know yeah, I think many do. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm willing to go to most, okay. but, but many I think do. And it, it Barnes and Noble benefits in that respect from having Amazon above them looking like the big green monster, mm, mm-hmm. um, that there's this, at least there's this nice feeling of you can go into a Barnes and Noble and have a cup of coffee and walk around and look at books and ask a question. And maybe somebody that you ask the question of knows the book and many readers, I think like late millennial readers and the people in of our generation have fond memories mm-hmm. of like our shared uh, Barnes and Noble on the plaza of going there as a teen and like 
it blew my mind that there was a bookstore that was big enough that it needed an escalator. Oh, it crushed an elevator. <laughs> I mean, blow, blew me away. Right? Um, just that, like, you know, nostalgia factor, but also it's a pleasant experience and you can, people do like to browse and no one has replicated online the browsing experience no. that you get in a bookstore. And many, many places are still book deserts and at least don't have an indie bookstore. Um, so Barnes & Noble for a ton of people is their only access to a bookstore. Um, and I, yeah, I think publishing doesn't have a lot of um, ire towards Barnes and Noble. Publishers don't talk to us the way that, about Barnes and Noble, the no. way they talk about Amazon, where like they're afraid of <laughs> He angering. who must not be named, right. Yeah, it right. really is it like, is. you know, a Voldemort situation. Mm -hmm. Like publishers are afraid of upsetting Amazon. They're afraid to like do a sale of one book or a special kind of deal for anyone because if Amazon like finds out, then, yeah. uh, you know, who knows what Amazon will do to their titles and they rely so heavily on Amazon for sales. Um, but yeah, I, I, where people aren't afraid of Barnes and Noble. They don't have to worry about it, which helps towards happy feelings. But then I, I do think a lot of readers have, you know, positive experiences from Barnes and Noble stores. And those ones in New York that are near publishing, mm -hmm are gorgeous stores that host huge events. events. Yeah. We fancy. saw Tony Morrison at the Union we Square did. Barnes oh and Noble. God. Like we can't start talking about that. No, it'll just be the rest of the show. Uh, but yeah, they get the biggest authors, um, especially in that Union Square store. And I think publishers do, you know, people in publishing feel fondly about Barnes and Noble and readers in general. Like there's not really much of a reason that I know of to have a bad taste in your mouth about, the place that Barnes and Noble has in the world of books. Yeah, I mean, unless you're an independent bookstore, but increasingly these days you've got bigger f fish right. to fry. You know, I do think I do wonder if Borders, you know, the story about Borders, like in the public consciousness, is that you know, books are dying, and so that's why Borders went out of business. It, the, the truth of it is that Borders was mismanaged, and most of a, a great majority of Borders stores were profitable. They expanded too fast. They took on too much debt and made some bad moves. I think real estate leases, they got plugged into a lot of, of the boring business stuff. But I do wonder how much of Barnes & Noble's – again, it's under – like it's not flourishing exactly, but it's also not, I think, any real danger of going out of business per se. But I wonder how much of that was helped by Barnes and, uh, Borders no longer being competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, Did it get a little – if Borders and Barnes and Noble both still existed, would they both be in trouble, like in a real fundamental business way yeah. around books? I don't know. Yeah. That's a question that I haven't seen answered somewhere, but I would hope that somebody has answered it, and we just haven't come mm -hmm. across the numbers. But in the like in the year after Borders closed, I would like to know what the shift was. Like, did Amazon see growth? Did those readers go to Amazon or did, were they so diffuse that we couldn't really track? I think I've seen something to that effect. And again, it, it's only correlative because you can't, you know, right. go to people and say, did you go to Amazon? But in terms of looking at revenue, I think Barnes & Noble got a little bit of a lift, but Amazon got most of it. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, it could be that what you're seeing is that Barnes & Noble would have been declining faster or more if Barnes and Noble was there, it could have, you know, you, you could be hiding negative results um, in an alternate history there. You know, the other thing I've wondered, and I've never had a chance to think about this out loud until now, I've, I've wondered this before, um, and I was reminded of it by just looking at some of the pictures of Barnes and Nobles. Um, do you think Amazon picked their color scheme to compete with Barnes and Noble? They've got the same oh. color scheme. I have never thought about that. Isn't that weird, though? They're like that same green and yellow and white. Um, and Amazon started as a bookstore, and at the at the time, Barnes and Noble was the nine hundred yeah. pound gorilla in the book world. I mean, I I wonder if there was some sort of, you know, people associate, you know, we're like that other 
bookstore with green and anyway, I've, I've always wondered. about yeah, Oh that. yeah. I've never thought about that. I was just reading. Um, oh, I'm reading a book called grit right now by Angela Duckworth. That's about uh, six. It's a businessy psychology book, but she has a chapter or like a section on Bezos. And I was reminded of how Amazon was almost relentless.com. Yes. Um, but I remember from the everything store, there is an interesting anecdote about like the competitiveness with Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Um, and didn't he like almost name one of the URLs? Like they own a bunch of URLs. Yes. If you type it in, if you go, if you type in relentless.com, it still redirects mm-hmm. to Amazon. Um, but he, the, Amazon owns a bunch of URLs that if you do that, it points back to Amazon. And I, it's been too many years since I read the everything store, but I feel like there's one of those or that they almost did that. Like they almost actually named the business or pointed one of the URLs that was like very specific. Narns and Blobal. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> something like that. This story would have been better if I had remembered the details. But, but, but I Narn, think it would, Narns both of us having read the Everything it. Store, neither of us would be surprised, I don't think, if we if one of the anecdotes that came out was, yes, we actually use the exact same colors. Right, yeah, no, that wouldn't be That's not a, Even if it's not true, it feels true. Mm-hmm. Um, something that yeah, could be it that feels way. It's in the realm of yes. believability for, <laughs> right. uh, for Jeff Bezos, for sure. Um yeah. Well, that was an interesting down Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Alley. Yeah. Yeah. Let, you know, kind of staying on the same tip. Um, this is a, this is a, uh, story I linked to the other day, a digital book world. Um, and they were, did a story about uh, jelly books and digital book world uh, jelly books. We talked about this before they do some stats about e-reading when people finish books, how, you know, where they stop velocity, kinds of readers, time of day, stuff you can't get other ways. Um, and they've been doing a series of things like this. And then they, they, they realize that, you know, one thing they can't get out of, what are the reasons people buy a book? Um, and this was a thought experiment. There's no data behind it. And I think maybe we did something or poll like this a million years ago. But they really try to think, so what are the reasons someone picks up a book to read or buy? Um, mm-hmm. And they came up with eight reasons that they think sort of encapsulates the whole thing. And I thought it was an interesting thought experiment that's worth talking about here. Um, well, well, you put it in the agenda. I linked to it. So clearly we're sort of on the same page yeah, to yeah. some degree. And here are the eight reasons. Um, entertain me now. So I'm going to buy it now. I guess I'd call this an airport buy, right? Like I need mm-hmm. a book now. Um, entertain me in the future. Well, I like think this is interesting. I'm not going to read it necessarily now, but it's going to go on my TBR or I'm going to put it on my shelf for inform me. So not inter- so there's there's a bifurcation between entertainment and information. Sure. O- obligation to read. You have to buy it because it's for school or your boss gave it to you or you have to get continuing ed credits or something like that. Social pressure to read. Um, everybody's oh, reading like, Girl on the Train or Fifty Shades. Yeah. I guess I will too. Makes me look smart. Uh, I'm nervous about how smart I appear and I think buying a book and carrying it and or reading it will help with that. I'm buying it for someone else. Need for a gift is number seven. And eight is impulse, which is let's buy a book. Mm-hmm. Or this is on sale. This is so on sale. So this is, I think this is both right and wrong, this list. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think it is both right and wrong. And it's interesting. Like You can see the – well, and they lay out the lines of their logic mm-hmm. in this piece. And you can see those lines, um, The uh, like the social pressure – to read one is interesting. They are saying like, these are the, like with the examples of 50 shades of gray, the lost symbol, name of the rose, similar things that are, you know, hot topics. Um, they say that at jelly books, they see a lot of page and chapter flipping because they're able, you know, they mm-hmm. can observe 
people's habits within their ebooks. So they see readers fast forward, but not give up outright on the book and abandon it because they feel pressure to be knowledgeable about it. I do think there's something um, to that, but that's all, it is really just guessing. They're looking at the patterns and then guessing about Mm -hmm. what's going on with patterns. Obligation to read. um, Sure. But how do you, how do you know, unless it's a textbook, I guess that the people are purchasing that it it is an obligation Um, and inform me, they're saying like the failure to finish these books is frequent, but that it's also a function of their quality Mm -hmm. um, and that business books are an exception. Many, many business books have a really low completion rate, even when the, when the sales for them are very high because buyers, most buyers of business books are only reading the first chapters. And their guess here is they're doing that to get the gist of the book and absorb the main idea and then move on. See, I disagree with that. I think that's the book buying equivalent of a gym membership on January 1st. I, yeah, I agree with you there. Um, And since we are both uh, relatively avid consumers of business books (laughs) at this point, um, I would, uh, the quality angle there is important. Um, And I do think that has a, that plays a role that uh, I have read first chapters of many business books or listened to first Mm -hmm. chapters of many business books and been like, okay, yeah, no, I don't need this. Um, If it's interesting and you get the main point, at least in my experience, there's motivation to continue going on and get more information and have this useful business book be a useful business book. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So I I don't think the the general spread is wrong. I think some of the understanding of what books do in Mm -hmm. our lives and what we perceive them to want them to do in our lives is different. Like, I think this entertainment information bifurcation is both both oversimplified and non-representative. Because I, I, why do I read Gilead? Do I, right. do I call that entertainment? Is that no? Boy, I don't think so. Yeah, there's like an edification. Yeah, I was going to use the same word. Yeah. That's missing. There's like there's fun reading and there's informative reading, and then there's that like intangible personal growth, but like. But not like necessarily self-help, informative personal growth, but that thing that we all get from books that we talk about that no one can articulate very mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, that is the like the growing of your mind or the way that you think about the world. Some or, of it can just oh, be pure yeah. aesthetics, beautiful writing. Yeah, I guess is right. that entertainment? I mean, it may be, I guess, in the most yeah, top-level yeah. descriptor, it's... but it doesn't seem to me to capture as I one agree. verb what we're looking for. And I think even information, like – so what, what's a business book that we both read? I'm trying to think of something we both... The Power of Habit. The Power of it's, Habit. Is that information? I mean, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah it's, it's also too simple, right? I mean, you right, do yeah, just know. To, to call it just information. Yeah. yeah, it's not a textbook. Like to call a business book just informative or a self-help book just informative really does miss the point because the information is the first step of that process. Here's how habits work. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the laying out of here are things that you can do and ideas. Right. It kind of misses the idea. I mean, I guess maybe education is uh, if they'd use education rather than information. And Mm -hmm. maybe I'm really being um, pedantic about word choice, but that seems to be a meaningful difference. um, Education versus information. So those are a couple things. And then, you know, going down the, I, the social pressure to read, I think, I think social, I mean, everyone knows this, right? That social signals to read a book are super strong. And 
have a life of their own and can be more powerful than any other sort of marketing campaign or recommendation from a celebrity or whatever, that there's a groundswell of social talk about a book. Um, and it's sort of user to user. And I don't, I think maybe some people feel a social pressure to read, but I also think there's a part of it. And we've talked about this before that people just want to be a part of something that people are talking about. Yeah. I'm not sure it's so, I don't know that pressure is the word that yeah. I would have used here. Like, we, we've talked so many times about how Fifty Shades of Grey sold so many copies, um, not just because there was like pressure to read it, but it, there was so much talk about it that people wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they didn't think they were going to enjoy the book, they wanted to know what all the fuss was about. The Da Vinci Code, I think, is also a similar yeah. case. Six, like It was like, what, six in hardcover for six years. Yeah, you couldn't get it. Because I remember trying to get it in a paperback and you couldn't do it. Yeah, I finally bought it at a used no, bookstore. Yeah. Right, yeah. I worked at Barnes & Noble, it was about eight years ago, and the Da Vinci Code had been out for several years. And like every day, someone would ask when it was finally going to be in paperback. And we didn't even know at that point. It was just a daily part of bookseller life. But those are, that desire to know what all the fuss is about also seems qualitatively different to me than pressure to read. Yes. And you can, because when there's pressure to know about a phenomenon, you can fake that pretty well. Like no one did, no one who was talking about 50 shades of gray or who had friends who were talking about 50 shades of gray or who watched the today show one time in 2012, didn't know what 50 shades of gray was about. You could absorb it just in the, by swimming in the water of media that year. Um, and, you know, spout off a fake it till you make it kind of opinion about it. So I think there's, there are those buzzy books. And then there are things that just genuinely, they do make this distinction between. But I think they've got the it things, wrong, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're okay. saying, like, yeah, they're saying they distinguish here on Digital Book World between uh, books people buy because of social pressure to read, like Fifty Shades of Grey, and books people buy because they are genuine word of mouth hits that people recommended to us as something they think we'll really enjoy. And the example they give for that is The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson. Um, And they say there's a higher completion rate of those like genuine word of mouth hits um, than of things like Fifty Shades of Grey. And I do, I think they have like, I believe them that their data is correct about completion rates, but I think their interpretation of it's wrong. I think it's, I think it's wrong too. I don't think anyone felt compelled well, anyway, that's a very big statement. I don't think people in general are feeling, quote unquote, compelled to read Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. No one was like, God, you haven't read Fifty Shades of Grey. That, in fact, we were getting the counter narrative, which is I can't <laughs> believe people are reading this. Like there were so many negative social signals about reading Fifty Shades of Grey that it sort of succeeded as on a sales point of view despite the social pressure, right? It was cool to not read sh- – cool, and I use that with all the eye-rolling <laughs> air quotes in the world – Whereas the Rosie Project, of, talk about not a fair comparison, right? I mean, in terms right. of sales, it's not even the same ballpark. But they're saying that Rosie Project was sort of a reader's, a reader's hit versus mm-hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey, which is a pop cultural, a singular pop cultural phenomenon. Right. Book. Sure. And a, like a, <laughs> a completion rate. I would guess, do people finish this book would have a, is largely correlated to, is this a book people enjoy and want to finish? I've not read The Rosie Project, but enough of our contributors have read Mm -hmm. it and raved about it. Enough of our readers have told us that they- Bill Gates raved about it? Yeah. Oh, speaking of celebrity book nerds. Sorry, we have to- Yeah, oh, the Bill Gates. Well, and he does, like, he posts on his blog about books. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Oh, no, now I'm thinking about a Bill Gates book club. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that- 
I can, I'm, I'm 100% willing to believe that The Rosie Project is a good book that a lot of people liked and enjoyed and wanted to recommend. Fifty Shades of Grey, it was, the, the reviews were so mixed, and I think mm-hmm. that's putting it nicely um, <laughs> about it, that most of the motivation to read Fifty Shades of Grey was about what's all the fuss about, not so much of it, this is going to be a wonderful reading experience. Um, and it is, like, I, I read it, it is repetitive, the writing is not stellar. Um, I understand why people opt out of Fifty Shades of Grey. I understand, like, they use the lost symbol, which is by our boy Dan Brown, mm-hmm. um, as another one of the examples of uh, the social pressure to read titles. And that's not the best Dan Brown book. I also understand why people fell off the cliff of that one. Um, but interesting to have all this data about habits and then get to make some guesses. Though, like, I'm reading a book to make me look smart. Um, do, do people really do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I think they do. To make me look smart... Yeah, I think they must to some degree. I think that also is a much more complicated um, situation than than the, just one bullet point here. I, make me look smart. I'm signaling that I'm part of a group. I'm signaling something about my identity. Throwing that all under the, the, the rubric of smart, I think, mm-hmm. doesn't allow you to say many interesting things about it. But I, I do think that, you know... It, um, having books on your shelf sort of in aggregate is some of that is this, you know, that you put them prominently and display them nicely and you have them alpha, you know, like you show them off. And I've done this myself of like, make sure that the, the, my favorite books are on the top. And, you know, apparently it matters to me that other people see them when they come into my house and I go to other people's houses. I look at their books. Like there's too much like peer to peer surveillance around books happening for it not to, to, to affect somehow. On the individual title level, I don't know. That I think that's much harder of a but, case like, to make. Yeah, the case that they're using here is for Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, mm-hmm. which is an enormous like bl- brick of a book. Yeah, uh, It's huge and very dense, and I'm not even going to pretend that I attempted to read it, but were people flocking to bookstores to buy that and just carry it around so that they could look smart? I mean, maybe. Um, I, I am with you. I agree on the aggregate use of mm-hmm. books to signal something. And like, we're having construction at my house right now. So I'm at Amanda's yes. house recording the show. And I will not lie that I was looking at her of course you were. before yeah. we started. Well, because we do think of, I mean, you know, the, the famous line from High Fidelity books, movies, music, these things matter, right? Like we think mm-hmm. that, that I don't know that we suggest that they matter in the same way, but I think we do believe them to represent something about someone. Mm-hmm. Like it and is when, a window into their soul that you don't get in another way. really first started surging, I remember a lot of hand-wringing and essays online about like, but if I just start reading ebooks now, then my bookshelves yep. will be frozen in time. Mm-hmm. And how will people know what I really read? Yeah. Um, and that, it does, there's this intangible thing to it of what what you're maybe trying to say to the world by the books that you've read and enjoyed. Um, but I feel like what you're saying to the world with the books that you've read and enjoyed is different from what you're trying to say when it's a book that you pretend to have read. Yeah, I think um, that's a different phenomenon. And I, I don't know, like, it gets, it's a little deceiving here because these bullet points get equal weight, right? Because there's eight right. of them and they each get a paragraph. So if they were to, if, if they were to do a pie chart of which they think matters the most, who knows how they would apportion the, the mm-hmm. power value of each of these. I would suggest this is relatively small. 
and I guess the other thing is that these things are they're these are combinatorial, right? Each book you'd select for, you know, that you're going to yeah. read are parts of all of these things and none of them, you know, like it's to break them out into eights, I guess over that's the way I really think it opens mm-hmm. it's like I think it's so hard to know to separate out. Like the the 50 shades of gray was just because you felt compelled to read it. I don't know. Like uh, titillation is a real thing. Like, I mean, sure. I mean, is that entertain? That's surely under entertainment. Um, so I don't know. It's very difficult to get at any one particular thing. And if anyone had figured this out, someone would have tried to figure it out and done something with it. I think that's one of the amazing things I think about book selection and book reading is that it really is a locus of so many competing desires and social mm-hmm. pressure and internal things about your own identity. Um, that it's a fascinating ex- pro- the only thing even come close to my mind in terms of consumer behavior is like clothes right that's a mm, similar I was thinking about music too yeah i guess music I, I guess it's sort of similar though you don't i don't think it's as complicated as books because you don't have the you know i've got to buy the 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 new um whatever album for class you know it does, yeah, you, you don't, you don't have, have you don't, the you don't have like the inform obligatory yeah. angle, but the social pressure thing is there. I think I would replace makes me look smart with makes me look cool. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, gift, impulse buying, wanting to be entertained. Well, a lot of those hold, especially for people who like now who collect vinyl or something mm-hmm. and are displaying their record collections in their living room. Yeah. The, 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 the education information part falls away. Um, and I think the social signaling stuff would get ramped up with music, but in terms of clothes, I just mean like it has this sort of functional, but also aesthetic thing going Mm -hmm. on. You buy it as gifts, you receive it as gifts, you, you, it's on display. You know, you're, you're trying to say something about yourself. You're trying to say things about other people. Um, but with books, it's actually so much more overt, right? You know, it is yeah. on display. It's on your body where there's a million different reasons. People buy ebooks, they don't show them off or they don't have bookshelves. They go to libraries, they don't have a, they don't have a standing collection, things like that. Um, you know, I think this is one of those dis- dis- deals where it's so complicated that by trying to break it out, you actually just reveal the complexity more than mm-hmm. you actually get anywhere new and try to mm-hmm. reveal any sort of clarity. I think our relationship with books and with all the media we consume is so complex yeah. that even if you were to do a giant poll asking people uh, why they don't did know. you buy they don't know. right why did you buy know. the last book you read they don't you might you could hit on one of these you could hit on all my friends were reading it or it was my book club book or I'm trying to improve myself in this one business area and this looked relevant and sometimes one thing might be the sole explainer mm-hmm. for someone's purchase but I do think they overlap so often and that we are just generally not nearly as conscious of or aware of our reasons for doing things mm-hmm. as we like to think that we are yeah um, just in general in life but especially with a why did you pick this thing books do so many things in our lives and to try to put your finger on like why you wanted that book in that moment. I think usually it's a reverse engineering. Like you have a great reading experience and we, then we try to tell the story more neatly of why yes. that book was the right book for us at the time. But you can't know that until after you read it. No, you can't know. And I, I was thinking, cause um, both you and I are reading sleeping giants right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think, I'm not sure we'll see when the sales number comes out. Um, I think it's going to be a bit of a hit from what I can see. And I was like, how did I get to this point? Well, to put these cards on the table, they did some advertising with us. Um, I saw it in a catalog a while ago. Um, 
in some of the PR copy, it made some comparisons to books I was interested. I'm in a bit of a sci-fi, you know, I'm reading more sci-fi than I did in a while in my fiction reading. Um, but what, and, and Liberty talked about it, and yeah. then, and I was like, yes. I mean, which of those is like, the answer is yes. <laughs> like, yeah. we've talked, I think you and I have talked about this before, like, usually it's not one recommendation. And if it, if it, if it's a single source recommendation, it has to be a very strong source. Like mm-hmm. you or I, you know, can recommend something to each other a lot of the time right. and we'll read it. Not a hundred percent hit rate, but a lot. Like yeah. if I recommend something to Michelle you do, right? or, you know, you have sources where there's a stronger, um, force signal, but something like this, it took like, yeah, I, oh, a, a tide, a rising tide of mentions for me. To I be had interested. a similar experience with it. I had not heard of it or like it hadn't made its way onto my radar. And then, um, they are doing a campaign with us right now that we're taking, we're doing social media stuff around the book. Um, and Amanda is on vacation this week, so I'm doing those. So I got the book from her and I was like, oh, this is pretty. And so the, like, the, the, it actual, is, it is a physically attractive hardcover. Right. The holding the book is a pleasant experience and you take the dust jacket off and the actual hard cover is gorgeous itself too and I was like well this is neat and then I opened it and I was like okay what kind of pictures am I going to take of this thing what is this book about and so the synopsis is compelling and then there's a comparison to the Martian oh that's what it was yeah comparison to the Martian yes exactly the Martian is the last book that I stayed up all night to finish and that is a memorable reading and one of the more different read-alike problems yeah. we get a lot is the Martian, right? right? So I and sort so, of, I'm primed right. to be ready to yeah. receive something Ears like the perk Martian. up for that. And then it's, and then it says that it's told in interviews and documents and it's not a straight narrative. Yep. And that's when I was like, okay, okay I'm, I'm in. Gonna... Yeah, right. <laughs> and I should say like, this basically never happens. Very rarely do I sell myself mm-hmm. on a book that we're like promoting. Oh yeah, you said in Slack, you hand sold yourself on yeah, the book. <laughs> on the site. Usually it's like, okay, well, I understand that this is the thing that is being advertised right now. <laughs> well, how much do you, I'm sorry, is, go ahead and finish I was going to say, this is the first time that like a, that I've hand sold myself a thing that I wasn't planning to read. I had a huge stack of other stuff and that one made its way immediately to the top. How often do you um, actually go into a bookstore or library and just browse anymore? I do it every time I'm in the airport. Which um, is its own weird data set. Yeah. <laughs> right, it is its own weird thing. And I go in, I don't know, I go into Barnes & Noble probably once a quarter. It's not a thing I do a lot of. And I'm in downtown Richmond a lot less frequently than I would like to be. So I'm not in our indie in the fountain fountain very often. Yeah, I actually spend very little time in bookstores. I've been trying to make a habit more recently. That's what I was going to ask because there's, you know, the great, the great and wonderful Powell's uh, has Mm. two huge outlets. Well, actually they have more than two outlets here in in Portland, the big flagship downstairs, but also three blocks from me on Hawthorne. um, There's a huge, they have a huge satellite. I mean, to call it a satellite is ridiculous. You'd have to know the the moon to understand the the planet to understand that this is a moon it could be a planet on itself in most <laughs> places and i i've been making a point to go in and just look around first first of all i enjoy it so it's so close i can go for a walk i get a cup of coffee i look around but also like i like the experience but also to remember what it's like not to know and i you know what yeah. it's crazy that there's books i haven't heard of isn't that crazy? Like, there's hardcovers <laughs> out on the new fiction releases or new hard. They hear like, and like what where is, is this? this? And they're they're not from like indie presses. It's like Crown or something. Like, how did mm-hmm. I not hear? So, I, I guess that's just a way of showing like there's so much information. Even those of us who really work in the business in a real way, it's hard to know how you. You know, it's it, hard to know how this stuff happens. 
It is. And it is just, I think it's lightning striking when you pick up a book that you've never heard of. And that's immediately the book that you want to read like right now. Right. Um, and it's what publishers wish they could engineer, but no one can. No one can. Yeah, no you one can, can. You just can't bottle it. Um, it happens to me a lot when we're, when we are traveling, I go in, I probably go in, I do go in bookstores more in other cities than I go in my home city because it's interesting to see a bookstore inside a new city's mm -hmm. culture and like what kinds of things are local interest and what's on their new release shelf and what are on the, um, I love looking at in indie bookstores, the staff picks yes. in different places around the country. Um, but it, there is always something and it's easy to feel like, well, we're looking at catalogs constantly. So we know all the books that come mm -hmm. out and that is just so far. Well, and you forget. I mean, that's true. the other thing. Yeah. I also love it. Like it's wonderful to still be able to go be surprised yeah. by books, what, by what books are coming out that you can pay this close of attention to mm -hmm. new releases and publishing in general, and that the ocean of books is still that big. Yeah, the 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 Powell's downtown is sort of, you know, there's a reason it's. Uh, I love the Strand, but Powell's downtown is phenomenal for browsing for a lot of reasons, and 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 that makes it kind of a unique book browsing experience. In so far as they have used and new on the shelves, the, and mm -hmm. they have remaindered and a lot of great remaindered stuff. And they have staff picks and a bunch of them, like end caps all over the place with staff picks. And they have a shelf of, and they have two major entrances. So there's a lot of tables around cashiers and they're broken out in various ways, which is super interesting. And they have shelves of like Powell's bestsellers for fiction and nonfiction, which is also super interesting. Yeah. So like as a browsing experience, even if you've heard of all the books, which no one has, to go in and see them arranged in these particular ways is 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 all the book browsing dopamine receptors are just like oh my god like you cannot <laughs> handle it it's it's really pretty remarkable as a browsing experience because I think that's the other thing that about browsing that's hard to, to to understand is that it's not just a bunch of books arranged alphabetically on the shelves that's interesting it's the permutations and curations and you know arrangements of putting things next to each other that makes it so interesting as well. And I do think, and sorry, this is my last point about this. There is a sort of pleasure to discovery that can oh, lead yeah. you to buy a book that sort of exceeds any one of these eight mm -hmm. things. And I guess that's what they're trying to get at with impulse. But I don't know, just like that it's you found something that seems cool and new and surprising. You're like, yes, I'm going to do this, right? Yeah, I think it's that surprise and delight yeah. factor that is like the it's the secret sauce of indie booksellers um to take like to take titles that are familiar enough and put them alongside titles that people probably haven't heard of but that they know from their no. experience if you if you're paying attention to this thing you should look at the thing that's sitting to the right of it and be delighted to discover it there um, i guess that's what it that, is it's really discovery right that whatever that right, thing about yeah, discovery that, that we like it's that it, it's just, I think it's the magic of it yeah. that nobody has figured out how to bottle. I hope that they don't figure out how to bottle it. I like the magic. Um, and you basically just sold me on moving to Portland. Well, so. when someday we'll have to kind of come out and we'll, we'll walk out. <laughs> we'll, we can go on a, a day long field trip. I'll just put a GoPro on my head. There, we can, we, we can do Facebook live video uh, walk around Powell. <laughs> it, it would be, I mean, there are worse ideas. <laughs> I mean, for, for doing stuff with books. Um, yeah, my you should go to Powell's and play my favorite game is just pick a random bookseller and ask them what their favorite hand sell is and then buy it. You know, I'm not a great bookstore customer in that regard. I 
I usually don't like, I usually don't talk to the folks there. I, you know, I'm left to my own devices and, and pals, pals is so big that if you're looking for something specific, you have to ask because there's like 12 rooms and it's arranged like an MC Escher drawing, like with staircases mm-hmm. that go seem impossibly to connect to other rooms in the back. Um, but yeah, it's not really, nah, I'm speaking out of turn. I'm, I'm sure there are booksellers there doing hand selling, but it's sort of not a hand selling kind of place, to be honest. Um, I don't think, and I, you know what? I'm going to go back and check. But like, it's not like <laughs> it's not like the fountain, from right? It's not like the Raven this. in Lawrence or like one of the independent bookstores where you come in and every you know every, basically everyone who's working there sees you and you can ask them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost too big for that to work. But I'm sure if you ask, you can still get um, recommendations and things like that. Um, anyway, you know, should we end the show? That feels like that's yeah, a show. Yeah, we're cooking along. I think that's. Uh, yeah, that's a show. It feels weird to transition to some of this other. We can save yeah. this other stuff. We'll save. Uh, thanks so much to Book of the Month, the Book of the Month Club. Go to bookofthemonth.com, and you can get 50% off your first three-month membership um, using offer code BOOKRIOT5050, all one word, no spaces. You know, it just occurred to me, make a hell of a Mother's Day gift. Yes, it Hell would. of a Father's Day gift. Hell of a, a dads and grads and mom, you know, sort of this May into June um, gift buying season where it's not really Christmas. It's not really, you know, anyone's, you know, we don't have birthdays at the same time, obviously, but it does feel like books are especially appropriate um, this time of year. Would make a great gift. So you're not giving, you're giving them a surprise subscription, but they also get to pick. I think that's also nice about this too. So it's a little bit more of a Swiss Army kind of situation um, where it can, you can fit a lot of different people because they get to pick. Um, thanks so much for the sponsor of the show. You can find show notes to this and other episodes of the Book Riot podcast, bookriot.com slash listen. Email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Um, I guess, let's see, what are we asking? If you'd like BEA coverage, if you're interested, to, if you would like to see us do some coverage there, I'm not sure. Well, we're always never sure what to do about BEA coverage, to be honest, because um, it's inside, but also there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Maybe we'll just try some stuff. Um, <laughs> let's see. I think that's our show. Oh, yeah. If any of you happen to know Andrew Love. Oh, yes. If you happen to be the equipment manager for the Indianapolis Colts <laughs> um, or you roommate, you're his roommate in, at college or know, know Andrew Luck and can give us a good email, we'll get him on. We'll have a special uh, interview uh, with him. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> have a good Bye. one. <laughs>